Good morning, y'all. So today we have, um, this is the time of our scripture reading, and today we have a little bit of a guest uh, for you to do that reading. Uh, the reading will be Ecclesiastes 3, 4 through 8. Um, and without further ado, we have um, DMX who will be doing this reading. So X going to give it to you. Morning and a time for dancing, a time for throwing stones, a time for embracing, and a time for avoiding embraces. A time for ooh, ooh, a time for embracing, a time for avoiding embraces. What? Come on, come on, come on. A time for searching and a time for losing. A time for keeping, a time for throwing away. A time for tearing, a time for repairing. A time for keeping silent and a time for speaking. A time for loving. And time for hitting. Time for war. Time for peace. I mean, like I said, it goes back to, you know, you gonna start with a prayer, you gonna do some prayer? Yo. There are no words more powerful than the book. My name is Jonah, my pronouns are they, them, theirs, and I'm the lead pastor here at Zao MKE Church. Um, thanks again, special appearance from DMX. When I saw that on Twitter like a week ago, I was like, oh my gosh, how fortuitous. We are doing Ecclesiastes next week. Uh, DMX must have known in his heart. Um, I am getting production notes. Is this correct? Okay, great. Um, we are in the middle of a series on wisdom, and when we say wisdom, we're not just talking about kind of the general category of, like, wise stuff. It's actually a specific type of literature in the Bible are called the wisdom books. Uh, we started with the Psalms because there's some wisdom literature in the Psalms. Last week, we went hard on Proverbs, um, and this week, we're in Ecclesiastes, if you weren't with us for Proverbs, I just want to recap a little bit, because Ecclesiastes is very much in conversation with Proverbs. Um, we have kind of these bookends in this series of poetry, the Psalms and Song of Songs. But in the middle, the three weeks, the three main pillars of the wisdom literature are Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. And Proverbs really set the stage. So the book of Proverbs is a lot of helpful advice. Sometimes that advice is a little harsh, and a lot of times it can be simplistic. It presumes that there's an order to the universe and that the Proverbs are the things that we must do in order to participate correctly. It presumes that God made the world knowable and that God is good, the order that God set up is good, and the world is good. And that's kind of where we begin. Uh, Proverbs reminds me a little bit of a professor I had in seminary. I'll call her Dr. B. She had a lot of rules, a lot of, like, this is the way you do it. You always do it this way. And my instinct was always to push back, like, it's more complicated than that, and, and you're reducing everything. But she had these rules for life. But she also had this hard-earned wisdom of decades of ministry. And she had this kind of, uh, this energy, this, this energy of, uh, I know what's best for you. And she wasn't wrong. But she was the kind of person who, like, she caught me once playing solitaire during class, 
and she literally smacked me upside the back of the head. So Proverbs, to me, is like Dr. B, this wise, experienced, hard-earned offering saying, if you know what's best for you, you're going to listen to me. And it's one perspective on wisdom, but it's only one, and it's incomplete without being in conversation with the others. And that's where Ecclesiastes and Job enter into the story, because they have really important ways of pushing back on the order that is presumed in Proverbs. You may only know of the book of Ecclesiastes from weddings and folk songs. So there's a passage that's often read at weddings. If two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though one might prevail against another, two will withstand one. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. How beautiful. Again, we hear this in uh, folk songs. There's a song, turn, turn, turn. To everything, turn, turn, turn. There is a season, turn, turn, turn. A time for everything under heaven. These are quotes from the book of Ecclesiastes. They're beautiful, poetic passages. And we would expect the whole book to be that, right? If we're coming into Ecclesiastes expecting more uh, wedding poetry and folk songs, we are in for a surprise. The rest of the book is really dark. It's a really critical perspective. It's a conversation with Proverbs where the beginning of the conversation is basically like, are you kidding me? The order of the universe is knowable, you say, Proverbs? Do good and you'll be protected from suffering, Proverbs. The wicked are punished and the good, the righteous are rewarded. You have got to be kidding me. Look around, says Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes would have been my jam in high school. I grew up really at odds with the world around me. Um, In my early adolescence, I suffered from a lot of mental health issues, depression, PTSD, and I was really connected with the pain and suffering of the world around me. Uh, It was one of the ways I tried to make sense of my own pain and suffering. The world that I lived in did not seem good to me, and the order did not make sense, wasn't even logical. It did not seem correct to me that if you just did good, good would happen to you and you wouldn't suffer. It didn't seem logical to me that if you did bad things, things would go badly for you because I saw around me all in the world good people suffering badly and people doing horrible things and seeming to profit from them. I read about the Holocaust and the transatlantic slave trade and was like, no. This world makes no sense at all, and there is no order to it, and if there is, it's horrible and cruel. So I read a lot of Nietzsche and Sartre. I tried to find anyone who would agree with me that all of this was a mess, and then we could just stop pretending. Stop pretending everything was okay. Turns out I could have just read my Bible. I could have gone to Ecclesiastes, which is the kind of existential philosophy book of the Old Testament, and it is depressing. But stick with me here, and we'll figure out why it's in there and what it means for us, why it's so important to have this perspective in conversation with Proverbs and the rest. 
So just to intro you to some of the basics of, ecclesia uh, of Ecclesiastes. Um, Ecclesiastes, the word uh, comes from another Greek word, ecclesiology or ecclesia. It means to the congregation. And so basically, the main speaker here is a preacher, a teacher, somebody who is offering their wisdom to the community. So we'll call him the teacher. There's a word he uses a lot. It's vanity. Or at least that's what it's translated as in English. In Hebrew, uh, I know it's got a Greek name, but the Hebrew is actually the original language it was written in. The Hebrew word is hebel, H-E-B-E-L, which means vapor or breath. I like to think of it more like smoke. So you can see it, but it's sort of see-through. It's transparent in some ways. You can't grasp it, but it's there. It feels almost like it was never there. It's not real. It's not substantial. This word is sometimes translated as meaningless, but that's not really right. Um, it is a meaning. It has meaning, but we can't grasp it. And the teacher says that God has command over all of this, that to God, God can command the smoke, the vapor, but we are just grasping thin air. So when you hear the word vanity, and sometimes I may even substitute the word smoke, that's what the teacher is talking about, this kind of ephemeral, what even is this? He uses the phrase under the sun a lot. It's kind of like under the heavens, um, but it mostly just means during this lifetime. It's contrasted with the place of the dead because this teacher is really caught up in the fact that, like, at some point we're all going to die anyway. I told you, it's a fun, fun book. Um, and then finally, the, the other concept that uh, Ecclesiastes uses a lot, the teacher talks about time. And that's where we get to everything. There's a season and a time, a time to laugh, a time to cry, this time is more than just like the passage of time. This is kind of an idea that there is a mysterious order that rules over everything. And so the teacher uses this kind of neutral term of time to talk about it. But whereas Proverbs talks about the order of the universe, wisdom is this order um, that God has set into motion, and there's this presumption that it's good, the teacher just talks about time. There's a time for this and a time for that, an order that seems both pressing in on us and also somehow beyond us, beyond our understanding. So given these terms, we can kind of dive into what the teacher has to say to us. He starts by examining the question central to all wisdom literature, which is, how do you live a good life? And pretty quickly, he decides that the traditional route proposed in Proverbs doesn't work. He says in chapter 2, I searched my mind how to cheer my body with wine, my mind still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly until I might see what was good for mortals to do under heaven during the few days of their life. In chapter 2, he then details how he does all the things that you're supposed to do um, if you have access to do life correctly, right, which is accumulate wealth. Um, accumulate pleasure. He talks about food and concubines and all this stuff. He talks about um, owning people and objects and saying, I did all the things, and nothing. He follows all this speech, um, which is probably more of a thought experiment than autobiographical. And he says, Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had spent in doing it. 
and again, all was vanity, smoke, and chasing after the wind. He doesn't have a really positive view of the good life as told by Proverbs. He says that the rich will never be satisfied with riches, that there is nothing in this world that actually can bring meaning to this smoke, this sense that all is sort of beyond our grasp. Part of his frustration about it, this sense that nothing means uh, anything to humans, that only God understands meaning and it's kind of beyond us, is that death comes for everyone. So what good is any of what we do if everyone dies in the end? He talks about how if you're wise or if you're foolish, you still die in the end. In chapter 2, he says, The wise have eyes in their head, but fools walk in the darkness. Yet I perceived that the same fate befalls them all. And then I said to myself, What happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said to myself, That also is vanity. Again, my jam during high school. What is the point of all of this? Why even bother to live a good life when uh, death and suffering follows all of us anyway? And, and not just death. Uh, the author, the teacher, goes on to talk about injustice and evil. In chapter 9, he says, Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to the skillful, but time and chance happen to them all. We're back to this concept of time, that it feels like this order of the universe is beyond our grasp. Proverbs told us that if we did right, we could kind of hack the code of the universe. But Ecclesiastes says, no, sometimes stuff just happens. And that feels awful. He goes further into the injustices and evils, the times where it seems like not only is there no order that we can thrive by, but actually the opposite. In chapter 3, he says, Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, wickedness was there. And in the place of righteousness, wickedness was there as well. In chapter 8, there is a vanity that takes place on earth that there are righteous people who are treated according to the conduct of the wicked, and there are righteous people who are treated according to the conduct, I'm sorry, there are wicked people who are treated according to the conduct of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. And here, I think it's hard not to empathize with the teacher. When we look around and we see innocent children in cages, when we look around and we see black communities disproportionately devastated by this virus, when we look around and see the suffering of good and innocent and righteous people, we can't help but feel like, like the promises that there is an order to the world are empty, that Proverbs has nothing for us. And similarly, when people who are profiting off of people's sickness and death, when people who are profiting off of the exploitation um, and, and caging of children, it's hard to have hope that any of it means anything. All of it is smoke. I hear you, teacher. I feel you. He even goes so far as to kind of admonish us not to have hope or expectations. In chapter, set, in chapter 5, 
He says, if you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and right, do not be amazed at the matter. The teacher has come to expect oppression and injustice and evil. And how many of us looking around at the world can truly disagree? Again, he says in chapter 4, I saw the oppressions that are practiced under the sun. Look at the tears of the oppressed with no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power and no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who have already died more fortunate than the living, who are alive. But better than both is the one who has not been, has not seen the evil deeds that are under the sun. Whoa. This is the territory of nihilists, some of whom argue that life is not worth living. We're getting really dark here. So why is this in the Bible? This is in the Bible as an important conversation partner, a truth of the world as human beings experience it. Proverbs is one piece of that conversation, uh, a firm and unyielding insistence that there is order and goodness to the world and all we need to do is be faithful to it. But another important conversation partner to speak truth about the world as it is, is Ecclesiastes that says sometimes that order doesn't work. Sometimes what seems like it should be is vapor, is air, is smoke in our fingers, and in its place is evil. And we can't ignore that. So what is going on? Is there even any meaning? We're a lot more comfortable with the simple platitudes of Proverbs than with the dark questions of Ecclesiastes, even though we know that neither one is complete. We need space for both in our lives, in our communities, in our churches. One of my favorite leaders at Zao, somebody who you see around the community who emcees for a lot, for us a lot, is Rocky. Rocky is somebody who I think really exemplifies the ability to hold all of this in conversation. I think not a lot of us are brave enough to stand in front of our church community and say, I don't know about God. Maybe God's useless. I think a lot of us feel that from time to time. And Rocky is somebody I really look to to, to give voice to that. And I hope that we all can give voice to that when we need to. I'm not sure there's a lot of space in a lot of churches for people to say from the front, yeah, I think of God mostly like Michael Scott from The Office. At best, pretty useless, though well-intentioned. But that voice, that perspective that says, that looks around and says, this order is useless. What is even happening here? We need it. We need to be able to speak honestly about that experience that we share because we all have moments of feeling like the world doesn't make sense anymore. And if we can look around at the world and say this is all right and good, then either we're not paying attention or we don't actually have a heart after God's heart. It takes a heart that breaks at injustice to look at the world and say what even is this? I needed somebody to affirm that in my experience as a teenager. 
I needed somebody to tell me that every day for about half of my 20s. I need that now most Thursdays. I need somebody to sit with me and say, this sucks. This doesn't make sense. Sometimes it feels empty. Sometimes it feels like there's no order to this at all. And just like with Proverbs, which is an incomplete but important piece of wisdom, this line of questions, this accusation that all is smoke, that God's order is not working, is holy scripture. It's taken seriously. It is important for being alive. We need voices of doubt and question. We need voices that even say, well, what if, what if God's order isn't good? Now, we always need to hold that intention with the declaration that God's order is good. We need to not let our doubts and that feeling of smoke and emptiness drive us away from the church. And this is what's beautiful to me about the leadership of somebody like Rocky, who is both saying, I don't know about this God guy, and coming back and being here and investing and investing in community and looking and searching and answering with more questions. We need to bring that feeling of emptiness, this ennui, to one another and to God. And we as a community need to be strong enough to hold it. Not to simply write it off with proverbs and platitudes, but to actually put those ideas in conversation with one another. In Proverbs, there is an order to things. In Proverbs, that order and the God who made that order are knowable and good. You can hack the code. You can learn the pattern. God is good and has set a good order in place. The job of human beings is to honor God, to learn God's order, and to participate in it. And that is a true thing. For the teacher of Ecclesiastes, the order of the universe is there. It's, it's sort of observable. We see that there is a time for this and for that. But fundamentally, it's still unknowable. And God may or may not be good. Judging by the way of things from our perspective, maybe not. You can't hack the co it code, it just happens to you. Time comes and goes. The time for things can be seen but not understood, not participated in. There's nothing to be done but to just hold loosely. And the truth of that human experience is worth speaking into scripture and into our lives. For Ecclesiastes, the job of human beings is still to honor God, but God is unknowable. Mostly, you just have to hold loosely to the things of this world Enjoy what you can, and know that things are going to be out of your control. And there's some real, recognizable truth to that. Let me control the things I can control, and release the rest. And Ecclesiastes says, not much is in your control, maybe nothing. The teacher in Ecclesiastes does have advice for us. That's where we get this idea about the strand of three chords, the buddy system, two are better than one, 
There's additional advice like fulfill what you vow and don't make any vows that you plan on breaking. But a lot of the advice that the teacher has is to just be present to what's going on. In chapter 8, he says, I commend enjoyment, for there is nothing better for people under the sun than to eat, drink, and be merry. For this will go with them in their toil through the days of their life that God gives them. In 7, he says, In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider, God has made the one as well with the other, so that mortals may not find out anything that will come after them. Again, we're, we're feeling this infusion of mystery and advice. Know that you can't know, and that God has an order for something, but it's beyond us. So, you know, have fun. Do your best. In chapter 9, go, eat your bread with enjoyment, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has long ago approved what you do. And that last piece is really interesting to me. God has long ago approved what you do. In trusting that there is an order to the universe, even if it's unknowable to us, the teacher says, God has God's own thing going. You're not going to anger God or frustrate God, piss God off. You've just got to make the best of what it is that's happening because we're all just kind of subject to it. There's a wisdom scholar, Gerhard von Rad. Von Rad, uh, who has a very cool name, literally wrote the book on wisdom literature. He's like the scholar from the 70s who really shaped commentary on the genre at this point. And von Rad is pretty critical of the teacher of Ecclesiastes. He writes that the teacher was quote, incapable of entering into a dialogue with the world which surrounded him and pressed in on him. It had become for him a silent, unfriendly, outside force which he was able to trust only where it offered him fulfillment of life. But Von Rad also has another observation that means a lot to me. He writes, to one who is secure in a fundamental position of faith, events can appear differently from what they do to one who is assailed by doubt. And in this case, we see Proverbs being the confident one who has a fundamental position of faith and Ecclesiastes, the one of doubt. Von Rad goes on, one must indeed go further and say that they not only appear different, that is, um, the events that appear differently to one who has faith and one who has doubt, they not only appear different, they are and even become different. And I have found this to be true. There is and always will dwell within me a position of faith, of assurance. Now, I wouldn't have always believed that. In my um, adolescence and early 20s, when I was most connected to my doubt, I would not have believed that, the, that there was faith. And at some other point in time, you may hear me tell a story about how I discovered that there was a speck of faith. It had grown very small, very dim. But it's always been there, and I believe that it's in all of us, this capacity for faith, for hope. There is also a capacity in each of us for doubt and despair. 
for this kind of skepticism and this understanding of vapor, vanity, smoke. And we need them both. We need them both to be in conversation with one another and a third, a third pole um, that we'll explore with Job. But when I was in the place most strongly of doubt and skepticism and even nihilism, I needed an antidote for that. I could only hold so much of that smoke for so long before I needed some proverbs to give me hope. I couldn't believe from the depths of Ecclesiastes in the wisdom of Proverbs, but I could, in addition to trying to hold loosely, pretend. I remember at my most despairing, choosing to participate in a kind of thought experiment. What if God was good? What if there was an order? What if the things I did did matter and could impact things? What if some things were unknowable, but some things were knowable? I couldn't move in a world where I bought fully into the Proverbs perspective. It just wasn't me. I couldn't say with confidence, everything happens for a reason, and be comforted by that. Because I couldn't just say that in good conscience. I could look around the world and see all sorts of things that happen for no reason or seem to happen for horrible reasons. And if I attributed all of that to God, well, then God was an asshole. I couldn't fully buy into Proverbs. But I don't know if any of us can really survive buying fully into Ecclesiastes, that everything is smoke, that nothing has meaning that any meaning is beyond us and unknowable. And the reality is both contain truth, particularly truth of the human experience of life. And so I had to find a different ground to stand on, an experiment in my own mind. What if God was good, even in this messed up, confusing world? You see, Job... Oh, sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. Proverbs has a premise that God is good, the order that God made is good, and it's knowable, and we can participate in it. Ecclesiastes is sort of on the opposite. Ecclesiastes says, God is, I don't know, but you better fear God. Um, the order is there, but it's totally unknowable. Nothing we can do um, affects anything, and the world seems to be a pretty terrible place. But there's kind of a third perspective that, that comes into the conversation, not a blending of the two, but another conversation piece that proposes that God is good and the world is messed up and the order of things might be unknowable. That what we do matters and doesn't. That we are subject to the whims of this order we don't understand, and also we have a right to participate in it and to expect certain outcomes. That we can engage God who cares about us, who is good to us, and who will talk back to us. And that is the perspective of Job. This is where we'll go next week to find this third conversation partner, and I hope that you're with us again next week so that we can flesh out the fullness of this wisdom. 
But until then, there is some wisdom still from Ecclesiastes. Even if we accept fully the premise, which we shouldn't, we shouldn't fully accept either of these, but even if we were only to accept Ecclesiastes' truth, that we hold loosely to the things of this world, that we don't have control over everything that we like, and that suffering will come to all of us, but so will joy, that we don't necessarily know when or how these things happen, that a full life on this earth contains a lot of toil, but that that toil should be enjoyed to the best of our ability, and that God, who has set this in motion, has approved of our enjoyment, and that we can just expect that life will be complicated to hold the things that we can, but hold them loosely. Eat, drink, be merry, find joy where you can. This is the wisdom of the teacher of vanity and vapor and smoke. It's not complete, but it is true in the same way that Proverbs and Job are. And so, as we experience this time of loss and confusion where the order of the world seems completely upside down, we can know that there is a teacher in our holy scriptures who's been there, who lived there and dwells there in a way that's deeper than any of us probably should, who can say, all this, it will pass. And so, for now, know that it is a time not to embrace but the time to embrace will come again. Will you pray with me? God of the universe, God of mystery, it is true that we don't understand you in so many ways. God, sometimes we feel helpless and hopeless. We thank you for giving us teachers who can acknowledge the truth and power of that experience. And we pray that we would be brave enough to voice that to one another as well. We pray too, God, that you would not leave us to our despair, that you would always put us back in conversation with hope, with faith, with the conviction that the world is ordered by a good and loving God. God, you are good. We thank you for giving us space to say, that we don't know, and that sometimes it feels useless. God, be with us. Help us to make meaning in what feels like smoke and vapor. And hold us together through those times, because there will be a time when we find conviction and firm ground beneath us again. Amen. <laughs>